Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Aaron Harris, who's a partner of YC, and Olaf Carlson Wee, who's the founder and CEO of Polychain Capital, a blockchain investing hedge fund. Olaf was also the first employee at Coinbase, and he was part of our first employee series, which you can check out on the YC blog. All right, here we go. Hi, my name's Aaron Harris. I'm a partner here at Y Combinator, and I spent a lot of time thinking about fintech um, and how technology is changing the way we use and move money and how that plays into assets, um, banking systems, insurance systems, uh, which all kind of comes together for a lot of people in cryptocurrency, which is obviously this new, not super new, but fairly new in, in the context of money and financial systems um, set of things. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it, which is why I'm happy we're doing a bunch of podcasts talking to people who really get this stuff because I have a ton to learn. So, Olaf, I'm really super excited to talk to you about this because you get it way better than I do. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Olaf Carlson. We, um, I'm the founder of Polychain Capital, which is the largest blockchain uh, investing hedge fund in the world. Um, far before Polychain Capital, I found out about Bitcoin in the summer of 2011 and became extremely infatuated with this concept of digital assets. Um, I decided to pen my undergraduate thesis on Bitcoin uh, that year. I think this was probably one of the first academic works on cryptocurrency. Uh, after that, I joined Coinbase as the first employee. Coinbase was actually a Y Combinator company and uh, is now raising money purportedly at over $1 billion valuation. Um, I was at Coinbase for three and a half years, and during that time, I was the head of risk. I was also paid exclusively in Bitcoin. Uh, so From day I, I, one, day one uh, for the, the entirety of my time there, I was paid exclusively in Bitcoin. So um, there were good uh, times when that was a good decision and times when that was a bad decision. Uh, but I think net net, it was right. Um, and I left uh, last summer to launch the Polychain Fund. Uh, so we launched with a little uh, around four million under management, um, and now we have about two hundred million under management. We have backing from. Union Square Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Sequoia, and Founders Fund, among others. So uh, somewhat unusual LP base, and we, we can get into that a little bit. Are those funds functioning as straight LPs, or are they investing in the GP? Uh, they're straight LPs. Okay. So I worked for a hedge fund for a while, so I have a conception of how that looks in my head, the kind of things that you look at, but there are a lot of different kinds of hedge funds. There are macro hedge funds, there are long-short funds, there are activist funds. What does it mean to be a hedge fund focused on the blockchain? Yeah, so a lot of those strategies you just uh, stated could all apply to cryptocurrency assets. Some of them are mechanically much more difficult. So, for example, uh, short positions in the space are, are difficult to um, achieve in a secure way. Um, also, for example, something as simple as margin trading can be hard to find um, for, for the right assets that you're trying to trade in. Um, for us, I, we're sort of what I would call fundamental investors in that we're long only with a long holding period, um, and I spend most of my time reading research papers about cryptocurrencies. How long of a holding period? Uh, so it really depends on, on how fast um, things grow. So um, we are rebalancing the portfolio um, roughly every 90 days. Um, so the goal is to hold things that are, are good uh, positions for years. Um, but we may rebalance or sell down on those positions over time. Okay. So in terms of pace of movement, it, it kind of looks less like a hedge fund and more like, I think, how people would think about um, almost a mutual fund kind of thing. But I'm guessing hedge fund because it allows you a lot more flexibility in terms of what you're allowed to invest in and the strategies you can pursue. Yeah. So the the tricky thing was I knew in my head what I wanted to do as far as investing in these assets. Um, and that it actually looks a little bit like a venture investment in that you find things extremely early when they're still just a specification. So these protocol specifications or white papers are extremely detailed descriptions of exactly what a protocol will do. Um, it's often very possible to understand a lot about what this will look like just from that specification. And I often feel comfortable investing if I meet the team and I read the specification and really like what they're doing. So that looks very much like a venture investment in that you're investing uh, more on an idea than you are on proven data or numbers. Uh, but from there, these investments very quickly graduate into liquid markets. 
Um, and so because these things are liquidly traded on an order book, um, unlike a venture firm, you really have to balance those positions. You can't just sort of wait for the uh, IPO, so to speak. Um, so because of that, I, I knew we needed to manage liquidity, and I knew we needed to have really good uh, risk management around our positions because we have month-to-month volatility, unlike uh, a private equity or venture fund, which can just kind of sit on positions forever. Um, but I wanted to take this this long-term investing approach uh, that a venture fund would, where um, a lot of your success is defined by very, very big winners um, and positions that, that rise substantially in, in value. Uh, so we invest in things at a really early stage. Uh, we form really good relationships with entrepreneurs. I'm really proud of a lot of the people we've backed. Um, and then, you know, hope to hold those positions for years as those things grow. So can you get, dig into the technical aspect of what you're actually looking for when you're reading the white papers? Yeah. So um, when we're reading these protocol specifications or white papers, uh, we're looking for basically a, a novel concept or novel idea. So this could be a new application of existing technology. This could be an application of technology that um, hadn't been tried in a cryptocurrency framework before. Uh, this could be just a kind of new game theoretic model that no one had ever designed before that allows for kind of a, yeah, a novel um, incentive si- system or incentive structure, uh, new consensus systems, new um, just just kind of like anything in this category of um, enabling new behaviors. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of technologies out there that are forks of existing technologies. So they'll fork uh, Bitcoin into something very, very similar. Um, that's usually not very interesting for us. Uh, we really we really like things that are sort of written from the ground up. So like Ethereum was not a fork of Bitcoin. Ethereum was written from the ground up. Uh, Tezos, whose crowd sale actually ends today, um, is also written from the ground up. It is not a fork of Ethereum, even though it has a Turing-complete scripting language like Ethereum. Mm. And so when you're vetting a team, given that there are very few, you know, um, cryptocurrencies with a long track record, are you looking for like how many times they've committed to evaluate them or like, what are you looking for? Yeah, we, we definitely, uh, look at the code base. Um, I, I think, um, a lot of it though, you know, just pragmatically speaking, like we, we can't review every line of code in a new blockchain, right? That's, um, we, we do, uh, require all our investments to get security audits, um, from, you know, outside third parties. Um, but even that, right, these are often experimental technologies and they may be broken in unforeseen ways. Um, so there are what I would call unknown unknowns here. There are, are things that you, you kind of don't know that you don't know. Um, that said, I, I think that, um, I have a, a long history of kind of inter- like at Coinbase, I did probably about 500 interviews. Um, I'm very used to talking with technical people and getting a sense of, um, their subject matter expertise. Um, I also really um, feel comfortable betting on people if they have a great idea. Um, so I, I think that it's like seed investing, right? A lot of the time you meet a really great entrepreneur, they have a really great idea, and that's basically what you're investing in. So there's a, a dividing line or a, a difference between the technology being interesting, right, and, and being fundamentally new in some way, and there being a use for that technology down the road. Um, and sometimes the uses are completely uh, opaque because we don't know what the technology is going to do to the world, right? The, the things that you invest in that do best actually change the world and create the conditions for which they will be successful. How do you evaluate that set of things or how do you think about that set of things? Yeah. So um, the interesting thing here is that most of what we're investing in today are protocol or infrastructure layer things that really aren't meant to be end user applications, uh, most of what we're investing in are really almost like developer tools to be used for end-user applications. So a lot of what we're thinking about is what's going to enable developers more than what is going to be interesting for users. But in that case, the developers are your users. So I think it comes back mm-hmm. to the same question of, you know, do you have a view of what the world looks like in five or ten years? The things that developers will need to be able to do that guide your thoughts on, okay, this is not only an interesting technology, this is a cool thing, but it will allow this piece of the future that I believe in. Yeah. So it's so early in the development of what I would call Web3, or this kind of user-owned decentralized web, that oftentimes right now, to me, um, it's pretty clear which things are really needed. 
um, and which components of this kind of infrastructure layer are um, obvious value add to developers. What are those? Um, so, you know, for, for example, um, a project like Filecoin, which is launching pretty soon, um, created by Juan Benet, who actually was also a YC alum. Um, Filecoin is basically decentralized server client architecture. So a Filecoin is an incentive layer for the IPFS uh, server system. So IPFS, instead of being location-based addressing like IP addresses, it's actually content-based addressing. So when you click a link in the IPFS network, instead of being routed to a specific server, you're routed to the nearest server that has a specific piece of content. Um, what that means is that you can have a totally decentralized architecture where you have uh, redundant hosting from many no nodes across the network, and you pay Filecoin in order to um, submit requests to those nodes. So it's like a, a, a distributed server architecture. Um, right now, you see a lot of distributed services, um, say OpenBazaar. Um, OpenBazaar is a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, sort of like a peer-to-peer -peer eBay. Uh, well, OpenBazaar right now, as a user, you actually have to download an application like a DMG to your computer and run it locally and basically run a node in the network. Um, this is not a great user experience. This means that in Web3, you'd have to download a new application, sort of like it is on mobile, instead of being able to just go to uh, a URL in the browser. Uh, with the IPFS network in place um, and Filecoin, which basically adds high uptime and fast bandwidth and uh, resiliency to the IPFS network because it has this incentive layer. Um, IPFS is mostly hobbyists right, right now before that Filecoin incentive layer gets added. Um, then when you visit OpenBazaar um, in the browser, you know, you can have a better user experience and it's, it's like a more clean experience of this Web3. So Filecoin, to me, um, becomes a sort of clear infrastructural component that's just um, a huge missing uh, layer here right now. So does that mean that the, basically there's like the use case for IPFS and Filecoin is predicated on open bazaar being a thing or something like open bazaar there will be other things is then is the argument then okay an open bazaar is fundamentally a better solution to the problem of buying and selling things than today's centralized systems like ebay do you have to believe that to be true or is there some other world in which no these things actually exist side by side um some people use one some people use the other and because the economy is just so damn big and this thing is just it's all just going to get bigger there's two winners yeah so I think that over the long term, it's possible a lot of Web3 services will uh, compete on cost structures with centralized services like, say, eBay. Um, but that's actually less interesting to me. Uh, what's interesting is what um, these kind of Web3 services uh, do that a normal web service could not do. Because the eBay experience is actually pretty solid for buyers and sellers. Um, it's all smooth. I buy stuff on eBay. Um, I think the fees they charge are reasonable given they have like services they, you know, value add services like dispute arbitration and because all those sorts of things are, are kind of then independent on something like the Open Bazaar platform. But I do think there are going to be Web3 apps um, that really are a uniquely enabling behavior. So types of things that we really can't get out of uh, Web 2.0 or like the centralized web. And um, this is a hand-wavy answer, but I do have this intuitive feeling that we actually don't really know what a lot of those use cases are. Um, and what we're talking about is services for things like DAOs, a DAO here being a decentralized autonomous organization that's basically a pooling of capital on the blockchain. Um, when you think about a, a DAO pool of capital, it can't, I, I don't think it can realistically engage in traditional legal arrangements um, but it can you know, enter into smart contract um, or like software-based legal arrangements. So I actually think that um, you'll see more and more kind of services for DAOs, with DAOs here being just basically global pools of capital uh, that exist only in the blockchain and not in a legal entity. So these are the types of things. They sound a little bit sci-fi right now, uh, but I think in five years we could see some um, massive, massive um, kind of, er you know, it's like in the, in the early internet, I think it was hard to imagine Facebook, right? Um, and I think there's this video I've seen of Mark Andreessen um, explaining uh, Netscape in like 1994. And um, a, an audience member says, what are some websites you think are interesting? 
he really stumbles. Like he really struggles to answer the question. Um, and he kind of comes back to, well, this is really great technology. I, I know cool things are going to happen. Um, today, I, I don't really know what to, to point to. Um, and I feel like pointing um, to things that are uh, ostensibly better versions of the centralized web or efficiency gains on the centralized web is sort of the easy path. It's kind of like, oh, let's take something like a library and put it on the internet. Um, it, the, the kind of layer two or like native internet application is Wikipedia, right? Which you couldn't really have in, in a non-internet environment. So I think we're going to, at the beginning, be comparing um, or, or trying to port rather web two things onto this web three or decentralized user-owned web. Um, but that over time we'll find those web three native applications. And those are the things that I really care about. Um, even though right now they do sound somewhat sci-fi and I think it's very unclear what they look like. Yeah, I think there's kind of this, the way that I've tried to think about it, and I'd love to know if this is wrong, because um, it probably is, is that the argument being made now is sort of that there's this protean mass of things happening. It's sort of like the primordial goop from which life originated. And the blockchain technologies being built now are the early amino assets, right? We don't know what's going to happen. Um, nothing, and it's entirely possible the whole thing's going to go to zero, right? That nothing will happen out of this attempt. But if you own a piece of the right amino acids, essentially, those are going to create something. Something is going to happen when you have enough creative energy focused on a small enough surface area that we will see. But yeah, but even like in addition to like some people making money, like I think it makes sense now to talk about what we were talking about before we started, which is like, what are people not understanding? in like what's covered it how is how is cryptocurrency portrayed in the media and then what are things that people are essentially getting wrong um or not covering that are um hurting people from understanding like the creative power that they it, might be able to yeah have? so um this this makes me think of something that i saw uh naval ravikant he's a backer of mine uh tweet um and he's a great thinker in the kind of cryptocurrency space and he said uh something along the lines of uh you know, Bitcoin is, um, you know, the, the largest fear of, of kings and those in power across the world dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, you know, something along those lines. And I really do think this idea that in the mainstream um, kind of cultural consciousness, uh, cryptocurrencies, I think, mostly are perceived as a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, and I actually think it's kind of an amazing bootstrapping mechanism to get a lot of speculation into the space liquid markets, incentives for developers, and ultimately people building uh, on these technologies. So I, I'm actually not necessarily ag against, per se, a lot of the speculation happening. Um, however, I do think the mainstream media mostly view the, views these as financial markets uh, that are novel rather than novel technologies, if that makes sense. What, what are the key understandings that people don't get? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that these technologies are complicated. So I think a lot of people were reeling to understand Bitcoin and just the premise of a blockchain. And like right when they thought they maybe understood it, all of a sudden everyone's talking about Ethereum. And now they're trying to wrap their head around a Turing complete uh, language, which can actually execute arbitrarily complex software in the blockchain. And all of a sudden this concept of money or currency is a very limited metaphor for what these things are doing. And kind of, you know, what we're going to see is right when you're kind of starting to understand Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens, which are digital assets built on top of Ethereum um, that don't have their own blockchain, but are kind of secured by the Ethereum network. Um, and it all is kind of a, 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 an order of magnitude more complex than Bitcoin. We're now going to see just even more complicated things happening. We're going to see uh, Tezos, which has on-chain governance, where it's an inward-looking protocol that can actually use protocol rules to change itself. Um, and something like Tezos can actually uh, build pools of capital um, and incentivize developers to build on the protocol um, and then sort of dilute every holder of the Tezos tokens in order to reward those developers. And so now you have a protocol that incentivizes development of itself. Um, and this is all like on a native protocol layer. A lot of these things... Um, you know, that's like an amazing recursive feedback loop where the protocol actually builds itself in, in, a, in a strange way. Um, but a lot of these things are, are going to be, again, another order of magnitude um, harder to wrap your head around, like things like uh, DAOs, which I actually think are, are going to grow a lot over the next year or two. 
Um, so I think that the kind of um, technology is always going to be basically a step ahead of the cultural understanding of the technology. Um, and I, I, I think that's okay. Um, I don't expect everyone to spend their days reading these protocol specifications and trying to really wrap their head around it. Um, but I think that if you don't like dive into the technology and how it works, you can just ultimately never really have a deep understanding of this. Mm. So this kind of is related to one of the, the questions someone sent in for you on Twitter. Um, so this is from John Light, and he writes, uh, most, maybe all, AppCoin tokens are simply used to pay for some resource like compute, hard drive space, energy, etc. Why is a new token needed in these cases, and why can't we already use existing highly liquid tokens like Bitcoin to pay for these? Yeah, so I think that's actually a great question from John, who, who I actually know in, in real life. Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I think that um, the the... The disagreement that I would have is that a lot of people view um, tokens from a purely uh, from a pure technology perspective. So they think, you know, we can do this with uh, Bitcoin and like the Lightning Network on Bitcoin or something like that, which is a high throughput layer two network. Um, so why would we create a new token? And I think there is no strong uh, reason from a technology standpoint. Um, you could use Bitcoin for a lot of these different services, um, or, or rather Ether for a lot of these different services. Um, however, when you create a native token, you create a very different set of incentives. So for the developers who are building that network, you create a real narrow incentive around that application or around that uh, token, right? So that it's it's not just tied to the larger value of Ethereum, um, which if they kind of contribute this great um, application on top of Ethereum, Ether might grow in value by 5 or 10%, but that's not really a great outcome for that founder or developer. Um, in addition, the early backers of that uh, application or, or token that's part of this app coin, as, as John put it, um, aren't, um, if, if they're just... Um, you know, contributing to this product or service with Ether, um, they really don't have this embedded incentive effect for that network to grow. So um, tokens in this sense are really more of um, an incentive structuring or like a, a, um, a kind of game theory hack, right, to get um, really powerful network effects around a specific application. So this is kind of a, a rough metaphor. Um, but ostensibly, you know, in the United States, we all sort of benefit from the strength of the U.S. dollar. But when I create a new company, right, I create shares specific to that company. Because although even, even though, you know, I might help the U.S. economy and thus help the U.S. dollar or kind of the underlying network, as you might think about that, um, I want narrow network effects around what I'm building, um, and so I, I want, um, my early backers, um, or investors to have, um, upside relative to my specific application, not just to the strength of the U S dollar. Um, so it's a little bit of a rough metaphor. I don't think it's perfect, but I, I do think that, um, tokens provide really narrow network effects and narrow incentive effects. And that's what's so important about them. It's not really a, a technological reason, but rather a sort of game theoretic reason. Mm, okay. So there, there are two arguments baked into that that I'm not sure how to think about, one of which is the incentive structure question itself. Um, and a lot of the underlying message here is that money is, at the end of the day, the, most, the best incentive that you can give people to develop something. And I think there are very different opinions on this question, and I know people who are motivated by money and people who aren't. And some of those people on either side have achieved great things in life, both for themselves and for the human race. Um, so that's sort of the first thing. Like, is is this the right path to say, hey, we're going to break everything down, everything that all this fundamental technology should be motivated around money? The second question that I have is um, around this idea of empowering the collective, right, to develop new things and sort of this massed creativity versus focused creativity. And I don't know that these are in, in, in direct opposition to one another, but one of the things you get with a central authority that does something and says, hey, you're worth this much, you're worth that much, there's always going to be problems with the um, distribution of incentive there. But the thing that you get on the other side is focus of intent, um, 
which sometimes is bad when it heads in the wrong direction and sometimes is good when it's in, in sort of a, a positive direction. Um, the Manhattan Project is like directed focus on like, hey, here's the thing that we all need to do, all you great scientists. Yes, there are subgroups within that, but here's what we're, we're going to do. Um, so I'm curious how you think of both of those things, like in terms of how they incentivize positive growth, I guess, and, and if those are the right ways to think about it or if there's another way that I should look at this. Um, so I think, you know, I think we're seeing for the first time capitalism and like money incentives being built into open source projects, which I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, I always cringe a little bit inside when I see the Wikipedia banner that's sort of like, please donate $2. Um, and I, I can't help but think there's a world where Wikipedia was like incentivized with a token and uh, Jimmy Wales for his contribution to the world uh, actually captured a huge amount of value um, in, in that he created a lot of value, but he did not capture a lot of value, obviously, like having to go out hat in hand for, for $2 donations. Um, whereas I think that what we're seeing now with open source projects is um, the creators of uh, something like Ethereum, um, they're creating a huge amount of value for the world and they're also capturing that value. Um, and I think that uh, value capture is a, is, and that kind of adding this kind of capitalist for-profit mentality to open source will absolutely accelerate development in this ecosystem. I just think um, there, I don't have any question in my mind that monetary incentives drive growth and, and uh, drive people to work on a project. Um, you know, everyone, you know, or most, most, you know, United people in the United States like have a job and they mostly do that for the money at the end of the day. That's like a big driver or incentive. Um, no matter how much someone is passionate about something, if you pulled out all the money from it, um, it would be very hard for them, um, to continue doing that in most cases. So I think, um, adding monetary incentives to this, um, while it does uh, draw in a sort of different group of people in some ways than you'd find in traditional open source communities like hacking on the Linux kernel or something, um, I do think that it ultimately will uh, dramatically increase the pace of development here. Okay. And then what about this question about sort of focused effort versus distributed effort in terms of... Um you know, creativity and like what should get built. Yeah. So I, you know, I have a kind of open market view on this in, in that, um, if you build something great, um, then a lot of it, attention and capital, uh, and users will be pushed to what you build. Um, so I, I don't know if I have a feeling of like should or, or like a kind of, um, moral sense about what should exist. Uh, but I, I do think that there is massive opportunity right now in that um, when people do have a massive breakthrough, the speed at which capital is coordinating to back their efforts is absolutely astounding. And I think it's something that is unprecedented. We've never seen before in the world. Um, I think that uh, VCs and early seed investors um, have always had this somewhat uh, unique access to these early stage projects through um, their network or something like that. And I think that in Silicon Valley, we take for granted that smart people with a good idea get funded. Um, now we're seeing that on a global scale um, and we're seeing these things happen much faster and we're seeing huge amounts of capital be coordinated um, by just pure incentives around projects. Um, so it's, it's early days and it's hard for me to tell this, this sort of crowd sale or, or so-called ICO um, fundraising um how this will play out but i do think over the long term we're actually only seeing the very very beginning of this even though uh crowd sales are are now uh raising more money than seed round deals in dollar terms uh, which is kind of astounding i mean this whole concept of of a crowd sales maybe two years old mm -hmm. um and really in the mainstream spotlight about six months old um and yet it's already sort of surpassed um seed round financing in dollar terms um, and I think we're in sort of a hypey moment right now, but over the long term, I think this trend is very real and here to stay. So I completely agree. The speed with which this has happened and the amounts of money getting diverted to it are mind boggling. Um, has the distribution of capital into the ICOs matched your model of innovative technology? No. So what's actually driving? How off is it? I, I, you know, 
it's 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 kind of like a dartboard. It's like a fifty percent hit. It's what you'd expect. It's like a fifty percent hit, right? So like you know, for example, Tezos. Um, it's it's you know, I've talked about Tezos a lot. It's well known that we were their uh, first backer and and kind of largest backer. Um, you know, long before they were known as a public project. Um, they've now raised what I think is the largest crowd sale of, of all time, um, over two hundred million dollars. Um, and so in that sense, I think the market got it right. I think it's one of the most exciting uh, crowd sales, uh, maybe the most exciting crowd sale that, that, that's happened. Um, and it also got sort of the most money ever. Um, so to me, it's like, okay, the market was right, maybe on accident, but the market was right there. Um, there are other projects. I, I don't want to badmouth anyone specifically, uh, but there are lots of other projects that have raised huge amounts of money and have had huge amounts of hype with very little um, real uh, progress beyond sort of an, an idea. Um, you know, Tezos, like the white paper was written in 2014. Um, if you go back and read that, it's amazing how accurately it predicted the future and a lot of problems that would face uh, major blockchain projects like Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, a lot of the new projects, it's it's like they're rushing to create a lot of, of, of hype very quickly and, and raise capital. And it ultimately feels like they're using it more like a fundraising round and, and, a, and a way to amass capital than a means of distributing tokens and building a really powerful user base and network effect, uh, which I think the power of these crowd sales is, is that. Um, yes, the, um, yes, you can raise money this way, um, but in a sense, um, crowd sales were originally a solution to the token distribution problem. If you go back in time, uh, before people did um, crowd sales en masse, there was a project called Counterparty that did a proof of burn. Um, and what this meant was they raised Bitcoin and provably destroyed the Bitcoin. Um, and this was just a means of distributing the token. Um, and they didn't hold that money, um, which now feels like almost a little silly. It's like, wow, you should have just held that money and used it to fund development, which is what projects are doing now. But it's like this was actually first envisioned as a means of distributing tokens. And I think at a latter stage envisioned as a means of fundraising. Um, and so I, I, I think that um, a lot of these projects that are structuring crowd sales also in ways that incentivize a kind of first come first serve mass uh, rush for the doors, um, basically that all the excess value between the cap on the crowd sale and the eventual market price goes to traders or like what I would maybe call ticket scalpers um, rather than developers or like authentic backers or users. So, so there is a question from Twitter again related to this. So uh, Jesse Jumpcut asks, protocols like Ethereum are exciting for developers, investors, but not seeing much excitement from actual users using the apps. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, it's accurate that right now we're absolutely still in a speculative phase more than anything. Um, I think this is true, by the way, of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum as well, um, not just kind of crowd sales. Um, but that said, I think a lot of these services, um, speculation actually is very important um, to drive those eventual network effects. So um, there's two reasons for this. So one is that... Um, a network effect, building a network effect has traditionally been this, this chicken and egg problem. That's like, if I'm the first user on Instagram, it's not a very good service, right? Um, but if I'm the 10 millionth user on Instagram, maybe it's pretty good. And if I'm like the billionth user on Instagram, maybe it's great, right? Um, but it really depends on a, amassing a crowd of people all at once in order to kind of get off the ground. Um, and Instagram had a very big launch day. And I think it's one of the reasons the service has been successful over time. Um, so by um, driving in a lot of early uh, people just through speculation, um, I think you sort of um, kind of bootstrap that network effect um, in a little bit more of like a raw way where you have this whole speculator base um, that in the future, many of, uh, many of them will become users. Um, and there's this concept in Bitcoin that I think is sort of um, new to this asset class where you see in Bitcoin a lot of people speculating on Bitcoin and also using Bitcoin. And they're like, a, you know, a holder user. Um, they, they're not, they're speculating, yes, and they have, you know, an unhealthy percentage of their life savings in, in cryptocurrency, but they're also really fascinated by the technology and actually experiment a lot with different things and want to spend Bitcoin whenever they can. Um, 
so I think, you know, you bootstrap network effects with speculators, and then over time, the network becomes authentically valuable in the way that um, traditional networks like Instagram become valuable. Um, and then um, you kind of move from 95% speculation uh, to 5% speculation over, say, 10 years of, of something becoming useful. Uh, the second thing is that a lot of these services depend on a market price and liquidity in order to function. So going back to something like Filecoin, um, with Filecoin, if I'm a, 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 a hosting a node in the IPFS network and I need to actually, um, you know, host I, you know, host all of these uh, various servers for you know backend the backend servers for for services like OpenBazaar um, shops, right? Um, I need to know. What kind of like fixed cost can I put into this, um, and how much money can I expect to receive from this? And if file coins don't have a clear price in like USD, where most of my fixed costs are going to be denominated, uh, with a relatively liquid market where I know if I earn my file coin, I can sell it reliably, um, it's very hard to know how much to invest into this, and it's very hard to incentivize nodes to create high uptime, resilient, high bandwidth nodes in these various networks. Um, and this is like Bitcoin mining. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to incentivize someone to mine Bitcoin until they know how much Bitcoin is worth, right? Um, and then once you have these liquid open markets, um, that was a really big part of what pushed Bitcoin um, to become successful. Because before that, miners um, really couldn't, they couldn't liquidate Bitcoin and mining was sort of a hobbyist thing. No one was really going to invest money in mining when there is no clear outcome on, in terms of what it's worth in dollars. Um, and because many of these services, as they reach scale, rely on professional operators like node operators or miners or validators, uh, keepers, whatever you want to call these participants in the network that actually uh, support the network, um, it's very, very important um, that they have a liquid price and liquid markets so they can invest in their businesses, basically. For something like Tezos, which has now you know, had over $200 million in funds raised. How much of that, or how much money do you think they actually need or actually make sense? And I'm just using them as an example for the development of the company itself underlying the protocol. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and so, and to be clear, there's just a nonprofit foundation um, in Switzerland, similar to the structure of the Ethereum foundation for uh, Tezos. Um, so I think in the old model of uh, venture funding and thinking about like how much cash does a company need um, to execute on the Tezos vision, they absolutely don't need $200 million. They're a really smart team um, and they just don't need that to execute some level of the vision. Um, now that said, the market is pricing Tezos at $200 million, basically market capitalization. Um, so a lot of people have called for teams to kind of cap their crowd sales. Um, but the thing is that's tricky about that model is that when you cap a crowd sale um, at, say, $20 million, which maybe in venture terms is more like the amount something like Tezos would raise, um, now the, the market is going to take the value to $200 million because that just is the market demand for this, um, for this product, right? Um, but that, that means $180 million of excess value basically goes to these traders or, or like um, ticket scalpers. And it, it's the same reason that like some, you know, Britney Spears concert sells out so quickly on Ticketmaster. It's not authentic users. It's people like coming in for a trade. They're, they're going to buy it quickly and then resell it. Um, and this has two negative effects. One is that a huge amount of value, actually more value than, than is captured by the developer team is captured by basically traders. Um, and I see no reason why that value shouldn't be captured by the developer team. Um, I would much rather have Tezos have $200 million than $20 million. I don't know why that $180 million should go to traders. Um, the second aspect of that is that you actually hurt your authentic users who want to be either like a long-term holder and follow the project or like a developer who wants to tinker with the Tezos tokens. Um, you know, you, you exclude them from the crowd sale because the traders um, are sitting there ready to make the click on the first second. They might have co-located nodes around the world to participate on the first block. 
um, it's, it's just hard to compete with as, as a kind of regular user. So, um, while I do think that these kind of, um, an uncapped sale like Tezos raised more money than the team strictly needs to execute, uh, the, the short term or midterm vision, um, I do think that that value is going to go somewhere and I would rather have it go to the developer team, uh, than traders. But isn't that true at $200 million as, as it is true at $20 million, the, the order of magnitude is different, but you could still have traders or financial buyers, speculators buying $190 million worth of the offering versus, you know, $18 million of, of the 20 million in either scenario. So you could still have the vast majority owned by speculators, which might leave too little there for the developers. Well, and, and so I think long-term speculators are maybe okay. Like a, a group like Polychain that uh, buys Tezos and intends to hold it for a very long time, that's a little bit. That's a different group than what I'm talking about, which is that they're very narrowly looking to basically arbitrage between the capped crowd sale limit and the eventual market price. But, but um, sorry, I, and I'm just pushing on this because I, I don't. I, I get that the the size of the number is different, but there's nothing. Is there something about? Let me ask this: Is there something about the way the crowd sale was conducted that stopped? even short-term speculators from running it. Okay. So because the Tezos crowd sale was uncapped, so there was no limit on the amount it could raise. Uh, that's why it raised $200 million. They put no limit, uh, which means that the, the crowd sale participants put in their capital. It's $200 million. Hypothetically, when Tezos goes live and is traded on markets, it should trade at like $200 million, right? There is no like free trade or like upside between the crowd sale and between being listed on, on liquid markets. Um, where when you do a capped crowd sale, um, where the and, you know, cap crowd sale and the cap is below the eventual market uh, capitalization once it reaches liquid markets, every single person that gets in on the crowd sale is eventually is basically getting a free winning trade, right? And that creates bad incentives for people that have no interest in the project. They don't know what the technology is. They're not a long-term holder. They're not a user or anything. Um, to come in and, and purchase uh, the crowd sale and then just sell it like literally days later. Um, I see. So when, when does Tezos go to liquid market state? Um, Tezos probably will in about three to four months. Okay. That's not that. I, I agree that eliminates day trading, but three to four months is not a long-term positive holder like if you look at this, so if you are, so you're polychain, right? If there are other hedge funds out there that are looking at these things and they say, yeah, you know what? Three to four months hold time. You already have a 90 day hold time, right? Or 90 day rebalancing time. Like that is within very much within the window of rebalance or, or speculation. So um, I love this idea that's saying, okay, no, this is going to incentivize the right kind of users to come in. But it feels as if, if you really wanted to do that, you'd actually want the liquid point to be something along the lines of a year or two or three or four years out, at which point a couple things happen. One, there'll be enough development on the protocol to make it really usable. And it'll start the second order effect of people building things on top of the protocol. And at that point, you go liquid. The financial speculators are washed out of that market because they're not waiting three years, right? But the developers who are really long-term minded right, are happy to hold for three years. And if it's 200 million, great. If it's 20 million, great. If it's a billion, great. So why not do that? Why not say, look, we're going to turn this into a liquid market in three years? Um, so part of the reason is it just, it doesn't take three years to develop the protocol. Um, so it'd be like an artificial hold. Um, also, the space changes so quickly. Like keep in mind, Ethereum was launched uh, less than two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, like did not exist two years ago today. Like just absolutely did not exist. I mean, um, that it, you know, that, that kind of like artificial hold period, I think, um, is maybe like too long. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing is that I think it can be a little dangerous, um, from an execution perspective. And we've seen these problems with Kickstarter, for example, where if you raise a bunch of money, um, like without building anything and you say, we're going to use the money to build something, um, sometimes you can't execute and it, it results in a really bad outcome, right? Uh, whereas if they raise money from only sophisticated investors that understand the risk, like uh, a group like Polychain, um, which Tezos did before the crowd sale, um, then the crowd sale really acts as a distribution and launch um, more than it is a fundraising event to um, 
build the protocol, if that makes sense. The other thing is that these protocols are, you know, actively maintained and developed for years and years and years. So the launch moment, um, while not arbitrary, obviously that's super important. It, it's just the beginning of a very long um, uh, future of, of adding features and, and uh, you know, efficiency improvements and all the rest. Okay. Uh, so then Jesse, uh, Jesse Jumpcut asked another question uh, just about protocols in general. Um, which ones are you excited about? So um, I'm very excited about Zero uh, X. Zero um, X is a um, decentralized exchange and order book that lives in an Ethereum smart contract. Um, so the idea is like my former employer, Coinbase, runs a cryptocurrency exchange, right? But you have to go to the centralized exchange, um, you know, sign up, create an account. Um, there are some restrictions on like where you're based in the world, all sorts of other things like that. And there's just like high friction. Um, and then you have to, you know, deposit money and, um, you know, trade on a traditional centralized exchange. And then there's also historically big counterparty risk here, like Mt. Gox, which was hacked. A um, lot of other exchanges, I won't name names, have been hacked. Um, and so it's actually sort of dangerous to hold uh, your funds on a centralized exchange. Um, in some cases, I think Coinbase is is the best in the world at security. Um, but when I when I look at Zero X, it lives in a smart contract, so it allows you to basically um, instantaneously trade between Ethereum and tokens, or tokens for other tokens, uh, natively in this Ethereum smart contract. Um, and because this is Ethereum smart contract is, is just like a piece of software, it, the zero X, um, exchange capability can be built into any application built on Ethereum. So like if you're using, um, some casino game that takes specific types of tokens, um, um, in Ethereum and you like run out of those tokens, you could natively within the app use the zero X protocol to exchange ether for tokens it should take one block, which in Ethereum is 17 seconds. You now have your new set of tokens and you can trade more um, or you know, play on this casino game or something. Um, so this idea of 0x and their exchange protocol being actually baked into every dApp or, or decentralized app that's built on the Ethereum protocol is really amazing to me. So it, it just will facilitate this extremely fluid exchange of token for token and the ability to go from ether to other token and token uh, to another token is going to become very, very fluid. Um, it's going to be baked into the user experience and it's going to take like 17 seconds without needing to sign up for a centralized service or, um, take on any of the counterparty risk that you take on holding your funds on a centralized exchange. Um, so zero X I'm, I'm very excited about. I'm also really excited about, um, maker, um, Maker is pretty complicated um, if, if this already wasn't all too complicated. So um, Maker is trying to create a, a stable coin. So this coin is pegged to the uh, IMF currency basket, which is trying to, it's, itself is trying to be like a steady uh, basket of, of stable fiat currencies. Um, Maker is creating a, a uh, token, ERC-20 Ethereum token called the DAI. Uh, the die is pegged to this currency basket, um, and there's there's kind of market mechanisms that make the die either harder or easier to create um, based on how that um, how its market price is pegged to this currency basket. So basically, if it becomes um, if it goes off the peg, um, it becomes harder or easier to issue die um, in order to keep it to that peg. And what you do when you issue die is you actually collateralize other Ethereum compatible assets, so Ether or Ethereum tokens, in a smart contract um, in a value that exceeds the DAI you're creating. So if you want to create $1 worth of DAI, you collateralize like $1.50 worth of Ether, right? And so it's like the DAI is basically backed by collateral um, that's held in smart contracts as Ethereum compatible assets. Um, what this is getting at, this is all, I know that's a lot at once, uh, what this is getting at is a decentralized stablecoin. So a coin that is volatility free, but isn't backed by like a centralized bank account, which is a huge weakness from um, a compliance um, hacking perspective, from so many different perspectives. Um, and so now if, if Maker works, um, basically DAI issuance has an interest rate um, and that interest rate gets paid to Maker holders. Uh, Maker holders also determine 
um, in through a DAO structure, um, so like uh, you know decentralized voting structure, um, what the interest rate and collateral requirements are to create uh, DAI. So the maker DAO, which is the 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 kind of decentralized organization that decides those things, is like a crypto central bank for this decentralized stablecoin. Um, and I just find that concept totally fascinating. Now, this project is very experimental, uh, amazing team behind this. Um, but this is the type of thing that I think um, we will see emerge over the next few years is like volatility-free crypto coins. Um, and I think that's huge because if you're going to see a lot of other applications work like um, Augur's um, prediction markets or um, Open Bazaar, just e-commerce markets, you need a stable store of value. I mean, you could bet in an auger prediction market and be right, but then actually lose money because of volatility, right? And that's, that's a horrible experience or, you know, bad user experience. It's going to really limit the ability for those markets to gain adoption. And even for something like Open Bazaar, where your money might be held in escrow for a couple of days, um, you might end up paying a lot more or less than you thought or earning a lot more or less than you thought from an e-commerce transaction, which has very narrow margins, right? You're talking about three, 4% margins in e-commerce. Um, so to me, something like Stablecoin um, and the Maker Project is, is really exciting as well. Um, so yeah, those, those are a couple. Yeah. Are, are there other, um, other concerns you advise people to think about whether they're, they're going to put money in? Um, I'm thinking chiefly on the regula- regulatory side right now, but uh, both people developing tokens and putting money into tokens. Um, so I, I, I would urge anyone who wants to invest in tokens to know what they're investing in and really do their research um, and understand that this is a basically experimental and highly volatile market. Um, so don't you know do anything unless you know what you're doing, basically. Um, for people that are creating these things, um, this is a much longer conversation around... Um, you know, do you create a sort of parent entity like a nonprofit foundation? Where is that foundation located globally? Um, the main places that are turning out to be friendly, either from a regulatory and or tax perspective here, um, are, are Switzerland, uh, the Cayman Islands, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, to an extent, Gibraltar. Um, and then, you know, there's a handful of teams experimenting with other locales as well. Um, and I think, you know, we have yet to see how that sort of plays out. Um, I, I think that, um, that is, yeah, it's a longer conversation. It definitely is. Okay. If someone wants to dig deeper, what should they, are there blogs you read or what do you recommend? The, yeah, the problem is that just not that many people have even gone through that process, like, you know, and not that many people have gone through it in a really legitimate way. Um, I think that the IPFS team is, is a really great resource here. So, um, insofar as, as Juan or Jesse from that team um, has written blog posts or like um, the CoinList project, which is a partnership between IPFS and AngelList. Um, I think they're maybe thinking about this um, the most carefully, especially from a US-centric perspective as well. Thank you so much, Olaf. This was super fascinating. Yeah, thanks, guys. I can't believe that the hour is already up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, yeah, thanks for chatting. Okay, thanks for listening. So as always, you can read the transcript or watch the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And don't forget to rate the show and subscribe. All right, see you next time.